Welcome to this new episode of Healthcare Unfiltered, a Shadi Nabhan podcast. This is a podcast that is dedicated to all aspects of healthcare and how they affect patients, families, physicians, and other stakeholders. I am a hematologist and medical oncologist. I have interest in all aspects of healthcare delivery, treatment, leadership, mentorship, and policy. Prior to Healthcare Unfiltered, as you recall, if you are a loyal listener to this podcast, I hosted the Outspoken Oncology podcast. You can find the episodes of this and the other podcasts on my website, shadinabhan.com, as well as all podcast outlets that you could find, such as iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, TuneIn, Stitcher, and so forth. Today's podcast, I have the honor and pleasure of having a conversation with an amazing individual, Jill Feldman. Jill is a wonderful patient who was diagnosed with lung cancer and gone through the process of the diagnosis, the treatment, how she went about learning about the disease, and all of the emotional turmoil that all of our beloved patients with cancer go through. But then she turned around and she put a lot of energy into becoming the best advocate other patients could have. She understands and she understood what patients went through and continue to go through. And she took that and tried to put so much energy into educating patients, fighting for patients, being the true patient advocate that any one would like to have by his or her side when they are dealing with a cancer diagnosis, specifically lung cancer. So I've asked Jill to join me on the Healthcare Unfiltered podcast to talk about her experience, to talk about her journey, to talk about what she felt when she was diagnosed, but then how did she become a patient advocate and what does a patient advocate really do Uh, What does it really mean? It might be a very tiny word when you write it, but it has so much impact on other patients who are diagnosed with this disease. It's a very fitting episode for the Healthcare Unfiltered to cover lung cancer and uh, have the conversation with Jill uh, because November is Lung Cancer Awareness Month. So it's really important to uh, be cognizant of this disease And as you know, every cancer has a ribbon, so I believe it is either white or pearl ribbon for lung cancer. So wear one, educate, help, and let's try to make sure that we all fight for our patients as much as we can. And uh, a fun note, actually, that I didn't know that Jill is almost my neighbor. So it turns out that we don't live far away from each other, so it was actually... An interesting uh, observation that we laughed about as we had uh, this interview uh, taking place. So uh, with that in mind, I invite you to listen to the episode that I taped with Jill Feldman about lung cancer, the journey, the advocacy, and everything that she went and continues to go through. I am extremely grateful for the time that she offered our show, and here it is.
Well, it's really a pleasure to host Jill Feldman with me on today's podcast. Um, Jill and I met originally through social media, and then we found out that we happen to be neighbors, actually. We're not, we don't live far away from each other. So uh, when, no. when this pandemic is over, we're going to have a, a nice Starbucks coffee and, and connect in person. But I, I've invited Jill to come on the podcast because I've really admired the work that she has done and continues to do as an advocate um, on behalf of herself and a lot of patients out there. And I really feel that we can learn a lot from Jill's journey and what she does. And, and I hope that this episode will really help a lot of patients and inspire a lot of patients as I've been inspired with uh, Jill's work. So Jill, welcome to the show. I appreciate your time. And um, for the folks who don't know you or have not had a chance to follow you on Twitter or other social media platforms, um, a little bit about you and maybe as painful as this may sometimes sound, take us down memory lanes into how you were diagnosed and, and how did this all come about? Okay, yes, thank you, and thank you for having me, and I look forward to a Starbucks in the hopefully very near future. So I, my story is a lot different than most advocates because it started long before I became a patient. I had lost my dad and two grandparents to lung cancer when I was 13 years old. And then my mom and my aunt Dee Dee died of lung cancer when I was in my 20s. And in the 14 years between my dad being diagnosed with lung cancer and my mom's diagnosis, there wasn't a single advancement in lung cancer treatment, despite it being the number one cancer killer. And so after all of these deaths, there really, I had to find a way to redirect my negative feelings into something constructive, something I had control over. And so when we had moved from the city of Chicago to Deerfield, the Longevity Foundation was just getting off the ground and I got involved. And after all those losses, I had found a place to, in a way, to, to control, to take some control over a disease that had devastated my family. And so simultaneously, uh, as a, my person, my own advocate, I started getting periodic scans at 27 when my mom was diagnosed. And they weren't concerning at all until... Uh, I would say 2006, I was 35 years old and they found, you know, just a small nodule and it really was pretty indolent. It really wasn't doing much. So we watched it for three and a half years. So you, you, did, you decided to do the scans at the age of 27. Are you, were you a smoker? No, I did it because of my family history. Got it. So I said, there is no way this is a coincidence, even though they, you know, were former, they former smokers. And to make it clear, when I say two grandparents, one on each side, and then my dad and my mom and my mom's sister. So there was two generations on both sides. And I thought I need to really, I had a couple, I had one child at the time my mom died and I was pregnant with my second. And 
I just thought my kids can never go through what I went through. And so that's why I started getting the periodic scans. And so once they found something, they followed it a little more closely. And so in 2009, at 39 years old, I was diagnosed with lung cancer. My kids were six, eight, 10, and 12 at the time, and their only association with the disease was death. They were scared, and my greatest fear quickly was becoming a reality because I was following in my family's footsteps, and there still wasn't any promising research that convinced me that the path would change. And it was the irony of it is still surreal because I had been advocating for lung cancer already with longevity for eight years. And I was president of the organization at the time I was diagnosed. So I always think about it like it's like you go to one of those movies and you walk out of it and you turn to the person you're with, you say, that would not happen in real life. But it did, it happened in my life. And it was, at the time I had surgery and was diagnosed with stage one adenocarcinoma and positive for an EGFR mutation. So in 2009, they were testing for two mutations in non-small cell lung cancer, and it was KRAS and EGFR. Uh, the cancer I had was EGFR positive, and at the time, there was a lot of excitement around using erlotinib as adjuvant therapy in stage one complete resected patients. So you had the surgery? In so I had the surgery, and I was considered cured. So I had surgery, I was considered cured. And even though the cancer was a stage 1A, I didn't want my kids to ever go through what I went through. So I took the erlotinib as adjuvant therapy, off-label, and it worked until I stopped taking it. So eight months after I stopped taking it, there was a new nodule on my scan and four months later, I had another surgery to remove uh, another stage one EGFR positive lung cancer. Again, I was considered cured. The surgery was successful. But unfortunately, there was new tumor growth on my post-op scan and even more on my next scan. And... At the time, I actually I would, felt completely deflated because I thought that I was going to be the poster child for early detection, the story of hope that lung cancer patients and their families desperately needed. And I was also scared. I was scared for my family. I mean, how many times does one family have to go through that? But I, I, I mean, I was fortunate. The cancer was contained to my chest. But looking a little closer at the pathology of the two resections that I had, we learned that it was the same disease and it was not a new primary. So this was back in about 2012. 
And at that time, it was or actually early 2013. And at that time, Erlotinib was still the only TKI that was approved for EGFR positive lung cancer. And they were using, they, they weren't using stereotactic body radiation therapy in the way that they use it now. So for intrapulmonary metastases, it really wasn't a thing. But thankfully, after a lot of discussion with my care team, uh, we decided that use, to use SBRT, that that was a better option for me rather than going back on erlotinib because I had horrible side effects from Jill, the erlotinib. Can you tell the listeners what SBRT is? I want to make sure that people, I mean, I know you're using that term, but let's assume they don't know what SBRT okay. is. Sure, yes. So I forget about that sometimes. SBRT is stereotactic body radiation therapy, and it is basically a targeted therapy. So it's a higher dose of radiation, and it's directed to the cancer, and it spares healthy tissue from getting radiation. So it really, and for lung cancer, that's huge because there's only a finite amount of lung capacity one can lose. So I was able to use that to treat nodules in my lungs that were starting to misbehave, that were getting more aggressive. And I was fortunate to be able to do that for five years. I did that for five years. And back in December, I think, of 2018, unfortunately, the wait and watch and treat with SBRT ended. Uh, I had had progression on my scan, particularly in one nodule that was radiation would have been a little too risky with where it was located. And also it was the discussion that I had had with my team was we had been treating the scan up until then, not the disease. So, you know, it was time to really start treating the disease. So in other words, we were playing whack-a-mole while we could, and I, uh, you know, we kind of felt like, okay, yeah, now there's more, there are more options for EGFR positive lung cancer. And so a year and a half ago, I dragged my feet for a little bit, but a year and a half ago, I went back on a targeted therapy. I went on osimertinib. And it is the same type of therapy as the erlotinib was, meaning it is an oral pill that I take every day. And it's a targeted therapy for the EGFR lung cancer. So I was upset that I had progression and knowing I had to, you know, go back on a TKI was a hard pill to swallow, no pun intended there, but it was actually the first time in the 10 years that I was not overcome with fear about what was going to happen to me. So 
since I went back on it, I have been stable. I had great reduction in my first scan of the disease, and I've pretty much remained stable ever since. I did have to reduce the dose in half because, once again, the side effects were horrible for me, but they're more manageable now, so that's good. Okay, um, so you're still on the treatment right now? Yes. And I, yes, I am still on the treatment. And the way it works is I'll be on it until it stops working. And how often do you get scans now? So I go for scans every three months. And it's, uh, and that's it though. I don't, the nice thing about taking the targeted therapy is that it's an oral drug and I only have to go in every three months. It's interesting when I listen to you and you talk about the side effects that you had, because a lot of times um, there's a, I think a misconception that just because it's a pill, just because it's an oral pill, it will be more tolerated than chemotherapy. And I, I, I think, you know, that's not necessarily true. Oral pill is just, you take it by mouth, so it's probably more convenient, but just because it's a pill, it doesn't mean it's gonna be more toxic or less toxic than an IV. Um, I, I mean, would you agree with that? Yes, and one of the things, you know, with, with the oral pill, it, to me, and I'm talking collectively for all patients, that you can never minimize side effects. Tolerable is relative to each individual patient. And so there, that, I think there is a misconception. And I think a lot of times when the word, oh, it's well tolerated, is used, it's referring, it's comparing maybe some of the side effects from chemotherapy compared to the average side effects that people get from taking these pills. But again, it's relative to each patient and what you, clinical trials aren't a true representation of our community. So they, in our community, a lot of patients have other comorbidities or they may have brain meds or they may have other, other health issues that are compounded with taking the oral pill and having the cancer. So that could be one of the reasons patients have more side effects. But another one is, you know, I consider myself otherwise healthy but I have side effects. I did with the first oral pill I took. And with this one, I lost 13 pounds in two months. I mean, my care team was like, oh boy, I'm mouse sores galore. I still get them. And, you know, other, other side effects as well. So I think that that's a really, they can never ever be minimized. And I think that a lot of times patients don't report the side effects or they don't report really the level of side effects that they have because it's out of fear, fear of being taken off a trial, let's say, or fear of being taken off the treatment or having a dose reduction. Or sometimes they're just determined and stubborn and I'm one of those <laughs> patients. So I, I totally get it. 
No, Jill, I can't help it but to ask you, you have a very strong family history. Did you ever get then genetic testing? Did you see a genetic counselor? Did you try to explore whether there's any reason to think there's something in your family specifically that makes you predisposed to um, lung cancer? I did, actually. When, I, when my mom was diagnosed, they, every doctor said there is no there's no genetic link here. There's nothing we know about familial lung cancer. And I just, in my gut, knew it wasn't a coincidence. So as time went on after I was diagnosed, I did go see a genetic counselor at University of Chicago. And it was back in, I think, 2011. And But they were only testing for a few different, you know, genes and nothing came back that there was any hereditary mutation. And then after I had recurrence and I was restaged uh, to stage 4A, I saw a doctor at Vanderbilt and he had recommended that I get tested for my DNA tested, germline testing for the one mutation that they had seen kind of related to familial lung cancer, which was T790M mutation. And it came back negative. So Right before COVID happened, I was talking about going back and seeing what's, what new tests they have or what else they're testing for now. But I'll tell you, I've, I have provided some spit and blood to <laughs> several different institutions that are studying familial lung cancer. And so I, I have... I have my thoughts, I have my theories, but you know, there's nothing yet that they can definitively say links, you know, a uh, an increased risk of developing the disease. So you you were a patient advocate before you were diagnosed. How did your diagnosis and treatment uh, change or shape your advocacy world? Um, I mean, I would. I would guess it increased your involvement, but, but I don't know. So um, let's move on to how did this change the advocacy um, life of yours? And, and I don't know, is there, I don't know, how do we define a patient advocate? Like t take us through what exactly does a patient advocate do? Because I don't want to take that word lightly. We right. all, you know, every patient should advocate for themselves. We all know that. But you, you do more than that. So take us through that, that, that process. To explain that to us. So I, I know a lot of people don't like the word journey, but advocacy really has been a journey for me. And the first step in it is self-advocacy. And that really, truly, it's, that is so empowering. And so that's how I started, was uh, insisting on getting those periodic scans after my mom was diagnosed. That was really my first step. And 
I have to tell you, there were many times I wish I had advocacy skills when my mom was sick and dying because there are so many I should have, I wish I would have. And so after that, I knew that I nobody is going to be able to stand up for me the way I am. So self-advocacy is the start of it. And it is very empowering. And, you know, to me, it was about educating myself. So be, and I'm not saying at first, it was not educating myself necessarily on, you know, the basic science and that it was educating myself about the disease, about what I needed to know about it to in my mind, stay ahead of the game. And so then, you know, I was fortunate to get involved with Longevity was the first organization in the country dedicated exclusively to lung cancer research. In 2000, there wasn't a lung cancer community. There weren't walks, there weren't organizations, there weren't support groups. So once I got involved, originally it was fundraising because we had one event and it's really our community has evolved and social media has played a huge part in it but for me personally as the community grew my role grew and so i was quickly on the board of longevity my cousin and i started a golf outing but then i got involved more a little bit in research. I became vice president of the organization. I was president of the organization. And at all through that time, the advocacy awareness was huge because we needed awareness to raise money. And so for, because research, it is still woefully underfunded. So I, that was a big part of it, I would say. And then once I was diagnosed, it my you're you were right when you said that I bet it changed the type of advocacy I did a little bit. The urgency, the the fear of again, my kids going through what I went through at the, that point it was like wow that that's reality, and so that became, you know, at that time I really shifted my advocacy, I became way more interested and involved in research. I had stepped off the board of longevity and I wanted to be an independent advocate. I wanted to represent all lung cancer patients and their families. And so I think, you know, when you're looking at advocacy, my advocacy started in 2001. So I am where I am today after, you know, 18 years. So, or 19 years. So it doesn't happen overnight. And that's one of the things that, you know, I try to tell people now is when you first get involved, you can never ever look at somebody who's been doing it for five, 10 years and say, I want to do that. You get involved. You have to do what's, what feels good 
to you where use your skill sets that you have and make sure that it's energizing not depleting and so i an example is i fundraise still indirectly because they're doing it directly completely depletes me i hate it i hate asking for money so you know i knew at one point okay that's not for me and it's the same with political advocacy uh, it's just not for me so i really took the route of research but i have to tell you that science was my worst subject. I think in high school, I got a C in science. I Boy. did not like it. And I grew up in a house. My stepdad was a doctor. My brother knew he was going into medicine. And I was just, I just wasn't interested. So, but, you know, what am I, how do I do this? I mean, you know, again, this was 10 years ago. How do I learn how do I learn about research? And so I was fortunate that the Research Advocacy Network had a program called Advocate Institute. And it was for all cancers. And I applied to the program and I got accepted. And it really kickstarted my learning because it, 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 Basically, you learned a little bit of basic science. You learned about evidence-based healthcare, clinical trials through webinars. And then it culminated at the American Society of Clinical Oncology. And so where we attended as a group and went to sessions and wrote a dissemination plan. And that really, that really helped me. But there was still more that I wanted and I needed to learn. And I have to say that, again, in lung cancer, research was not moving at a rapid pace then. I mean, there have been more advancements in the past three to five years than the five decades prior. So that, you know, research advocacy was not moving quickly in lung cancer, but I kind of pushed my way into it and started attending or continued to attend as many conferences as I could attend. And through doing that, connecting with, you know, different scientists and clinicians and you know, my mom used to always say, you know, even if you don't have confidence, pretend like you do and no one will ever know the difference. <laughs> and so I just put myself out there. So as a, as a, you know, there's a lot of this information that comes throughout, you know, for patients. And I'm always curious, how do patients two things, a separate signal from the noise, because I think there's a lot of hype. You know, you could be watching TV and you see an ad about some treatment for lung cancer and everybody is smiling and happy and golfing. And you could be sitting on the couch and really feeling miserable. You know, I mean, how do we separate that? And the second question is, as an advocate, when you try to raise money and try to promote research, how do you do that without 
making sure that there is an inappropriate influence for the funding source into the research direction. Because you could go and go to a pharma company, a manufacturer, you want to get money to help patients and get the research initiative. But if you wear the pharma hat, maybe they want to have more influence. So, you know, how, how does that really work? Uh, I'm sure you got what I'm trying to uh, answer. Yeah, so the hype, the first question, the hype versus hope is a really tough, a really tough spot for us because as somebody who's been been doing this for a long time, I can definitely kind of filter it out. I've learned how to find out what what is something I can trust, what resources I can look at. But for our community, for us, those of us who are more in a leadership position in patient advocate world, it, it's our responsibility to kind of help, you know, and disseminate the correct information in a way that people can understand. And that's difficult, especially with ads these days. Everybody wants immunotherapy. Everybody sees the com commercials and they want to go into, they go into their doctor and they say, I want this. And where, let's say EGFR positive lung cancer, it doesn't work well for the majority of us. It is not a drug of choice for the majority of us, but you know, it takes some explaining to the community why and educating the community why. So I think what's made it even worse is this, I don't want to say the neg a negative side of social media, but one side of it that makes things more difficult is anybody could go on the internet, anybody could go on a platform and they could find information. And there's a lot of the noise, a lot of noise out there. And somebody comes back and says, wow, there, there's this vaccine in Germany and this is what I'm doing. Or we've seen it, what really is upsetting is when you see articles in, what you think aren't bad publications that are talking about miracle cures. When, you know, there was one recently that we read and it was about a miracle cure using a homeopathic, you know, going the homeopathic route. Yet earlier in the article, there's a brief mention of this person taking a pill for their lung cancer. So, but there's no mention that this person probably had a mutation and was on a targeted therapy. It was all about that miracle cure. So it really is difficult. And I think what we, what I do a lot is if I have any question at all, I reach out to the scientists and clinicians that I know and ask, you know, it's asking, is this legitimate or what do you think about this? And that ne I never assume that, I never assume that, you know. Because, that because there, are, there are certain things that even clinicians won't agree on. And I think patients really, it, it's, it's difficult. I think 
Let me pose a couple of examples. Screening for lung cancer. Uh, you obviously made a decision at the age of 27 to be screened for it, and I think we can both agree this was a decision on your part, but there's probably not a lot of evidence to support that this is, you know, you can talk to 10 oncologists that will say, I don't think you should be screened because you're young, you're not smoker, all that stuff. That's one example. And the second example, uh, you know, the Adora trial that just came out, for example, at, at ASCO, and where there was an update at the European Society of Medical Oncology recently, and, you know, about using osimertinib, the drug that you are, uh, not osimertinib, I'm sorry, irlatinib, the drug that you no, are on. No, osimertinib, you were right. No, no, the, uh, you were on osimertinib, but the Adora trial used, oh, osimertinib, oh, you're right, yeah, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I take that back. Yeah, so used osimertinib for several years, three years after resection versus placebo and showed improvement in disease-free survival. So, and you know, I mean, you, we, me and you are on social media and we see a debate and all of these things. So from a patient perspective, I mean, you are a patient and a patient advocate. So you're a patient that could be impacted by the opinions of these physicians. Also, you're a patient advocate that you need to teach patients who may be less you know, less scientifically inclined than you are. Mm -hmm. So how do you take that information and this controversial topic, synthesize them for yourself and for others? Um, uh, you know, I mean, I think we can all agree that many patients don't even, you know, they're not as scientifically uh, oriented as you are. Mm -hmm. So I, the, first, the debate about screening, really, uh, it, I have a really hard time with it. Never, it's not... Screening is not moving fast enough for me in lung cancer, but a quick story about that is I have a brother who's 18 months older than I am, and he has mental illness. He was diagnosed with schizophrenia at 19. He rolls and smokes. He rolls his own cigarettes and smokes about a pack a day and has since he's been 16. And he does have, you know, some COPD at 52 right now, but he does not have lung cancer. And that is an example of, you know, you can't judge a book by its cover. And we need to be able to figure out ways to better screen people because I got it, not him. So, you know, I think, I think, the lung cancer screening debate will go on for a long time, but we're moving in the right direction. The Adora debate, I personally got involved in because I had co-founded the EGFR Resistors, which is a patient-led group, and we have a community of over 2,000 patients and caregivers from over 70 countries. We have a closed Facebook group where they can connect. And we also have a website and a newsletter. And our goal is really to improve outcomes for people with EGFR positive lung cancer. So I was kind of asked my opinion on Twitter through Twitter about the Adora trial. And I tweeted a few things. I had my thoughts personally because I had taken Erlotinib as adjuvant therapy. Um, and so this ongoing debate that it was about 
concerns about cost, endpoints, trial design, overall survival, which are all important, but there was a critical perspective missing, and it was the patient perspective regarding treatment and personal goals in the context. And so, you know, I was struggling with how do I communicate, right? And, and let them know, because I did see both sides. But what really scared me is that, you know, survival is not some prescribed value that can be generalized for all patients. And, you know, these the statistical story is only one side of the story. And I was nervous that when you're in the weeds of that debate, that that was getting lost. So I put up this website because I wanted to write a response. And I do think it's very important that our perspective is out there. And so I really thought about it for a very long time. And and, and I changed some of my thoughts about Adora. And it was interesting because it, there really are two sides to it. But the, the bottom line was at that point, there have been so many advancements in lung cancer treatment over the past decade, but very few in the early stage setting. And we have a high rate of recurrence in early stage. It's, I mean, even the five-year survival rate is like 50, 59%. So, you know, what do pay, patients, would you feel comfortable if you know, knew that were your odds when you were diagnosed? No, but there was nothing you could do to lower that risk. So I, you know, I looked at it from my experience as a caregiver, as a patient advocate, as a research advocate, as a patient, and really on behalf of all lung cancer patients. So, you know, my thoughts went beyond Adora. And it really, they were thinking about adjuvant therapy. And so, at, you know, I, I went through what my concerns were about the trial, including important questions that would ne never be answered the quality of life, you know, tolerable is relative, and access and affordability because, you know, I feel like it's not enough to develop these new treatments that they'll only benefit patients who have access to and can afford cutting edge care. We need to do better. But, you know, it, it, despite those concerns, I think that at, at that point now, it's this, the only thing that oncologists really should think about now is stepping out of that scientific box and thinking about the vulnerable and scared patient and the, the family in front of them. And when you do that, you can, you can take the medical data and apply it in the context of each patient. There should always be conversation about goals of care and patient preferences before talking about treatment. The do, most you, do, you, do you feel that sometimes these, I mean, I'm glad you mentioned that patient's voice sometimes is missing because 
there are lots of these, you know, debates sometimes on Twitter and social media about uh, this endpoint, that endpoint, trial design, p-value, all of these things coming from all of these ivory towers. And um, it makes me wonder sometimes. I actually stopped having these debates with any of the folks that debate them because I really feel that... Uh, um, that sometimes patients' voice is missing. How do we get patients' voice more involved in some, because some trials are poorly designed, right? I mean, so we can't really, if you have yeah. a bad trial, yeah, if you have a bad trial and you get the outcome that looks, looks good on paper, but it's bad, we don't want patients to get treatment that doesn't work just because the trial was positive if the trial is flawed. I think we can all agree with that. Yeah. But I think, I think what you're pointing out is, how do we get patients' voice heard and involved in trials that are not poorly designed? Maybe there's some controversy in how they are interpreted. And, and, and Jill, I mean, I've said that many times before. I don't think there's a perfect trial. Give me any trial in the world. I promise you I can poke holes in it. Any right. trial. I will poke holes in it because there's no perfect trial. Right. How do we get patients' voice more heard? How do we get patients more involved in the interpretation, also in the design, like before we even start yeah. these trials? That's key, in the design, because patient input makes the research and its results more relevant to who they're doing it for, which is the patients, and we have the lived experience. I think now more than ever, it is easier to get patients involved. I think, you know, again, the positive part of the social media platforms is you can find patients who are educated to the extent that they need to be. We're never going to, I, I mean, I labor through the science still and, you know, and I'll never know it perfectly, but what I do know is what the people in my community feel, what we as patients, what's important for us. And I always use the quote uh, from Solomon in 12 Years a Slave when he says, I don't want to survive. I want to live. And that is important. Overall survival is not the only meaningful endpoint to us. So you go to the Adora trial and again, they stopped it early. And when you look at the data, it is impressive, right? But they stopped it early because of that. And the problem is, well, when I went off Erlotinib, obviously the cancer came right back. And we know that, but I can't help but think, you know, I've lived longer than my Aunt Dee Dee did, who had a couple of different bouts of cancer and then got to the point where she couldn't have any more surgery because, you know, she didn't have enough lung capacity to survive it. But... So I've lived longer than her. Did, did going on the erlotinib, um, did it prevent the disease from becoming more aggressive or you know, metastasizing? I don't know. I, I don't know. But it very well could have delayed recurrence. And maybe it's what bought me the time that I had off of systemic treatment. And that is meaningful. And those are viewpoints that 
oncologists don't have or people designing these trials don't have. So more than being able to say, we shouldn't have to go for these unnecessary blood draws. We shouldn't have to, you know, have all these scans. Uh, this protocol needs to catch up with the times. So it shouldn't be, you know, a lot of protocols I feel like are maybe copied and pasted, right? So those, those things need to change. Consent forms need to change. And if you find patient groups like ours, if you go to advocacy organizations, they can direct you to patients who want to help. And all we want to do is, I always say to the scientists, oncologists, help us to help you to help us. And really, it is that simple, just reaching out. And I do think it's happening more and more, and I appreciate it. Uh, but there's still a lot of room, a lot of room for more patient involvement. And I think if right now, if industry and you know academic institutions if they are not involving patient advocates from the start you know going through the design shame on them they know better now it, i i really truly believe that there is enough enough out there in again from just being on twitter a huge community representing and they we should be involved from the start and how do you keep i mean there's the dissenting view where they say if you involve pharma in a lot of these trials then they have quote unquote bad influence they may have like the trial is like you know it's, it's done for pure profit and whatever it is as a patient advocate, as a patient that you really want the best for yourself and your for your fellow patients, how do you take advantage from the funding source of pharma without having the influential impact that might really derail clinical trial? And by the way, in disclosure, I don't believe the, the theory that every single entity has an ill intent and all of that stuff. I think it's blown out of proportion personally, but but that's what some 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 might argue. As as a patient, um, how do you handle that? Yeah, I I agree with you, and I I think it's I think all of the policy and regulations makes things more difficult, and make really that's what causes a bad name in a lot of ways. But so it is difficult, and. First, I have to say, as patients, our only inducement is living. We just want, that's it. We want to live. So it was interesting to me when somebody first pointed out like conflicts of interest. And I'm thinking to myself, do you really think a patient is going to be influenced by a drug because someone is patient uh, supporting them financially if that drug isn't going to save their life or prolong their life. I mean, that is the craziest thing is patience to me because if I, if, os if you know, osimertinib, if I, the work, you know, we've done work with AstraZeneca. AstraZeneca has generously funded 
things that the EGFR resistors have been involved in. But if osimertinib was not the right fr drug for me, there's no way I would take that. So I think, I, I think, you know, there's a lot of people out there who speculate that. So really, we have to put it out there front and center, any conflict of interest that we might have. So how do I do it? When, and whenever I give a presentation, if I have conflicts of interest, I'll put them up there. But I'll say, and my biggest conflict of interest is I am a lung cancer patient or my biggest disclosure, that's what I say. When you put your disclosure slides up there. My biggest disclosure, I am a lung cancer patient. That, so when I'm presenting, whether I'm presenting data or I'm presenting a perspective, of course, as a patient, I am representing a collective voice. I am representing that collective voice. And that, that and I'm representing myself. And is that going to be biased? it's going to be a perspective from the lived experience. So it's a really difficult, it's a, I, I think it's a, it, it can be a slippery slope in some ways, um, but on the flip side, I've also learned that a lot of times industry can't work with us without giving us funding. So I, now do they say, I feel like when they say this needs to be for educational purposes, well, that's big enough that we can figure out what we want to do with it. I don't, you know, I've never been in a situation where I felt like my hands are tied and we've had to say, sorry, you know, we can't take your money. Years ago, we were, uh, when I was with Longevity, we wouldn't I remember vividly not taking money from the tobacco companies, not taking money from Kraft because they were owned by I think R.J. Reynolds. Uh, I remember having in our early years having that you know stand, but I don't. Uh, I haven't run into really a conflict of interest right now, but we do tell advocates, we do try to explain to them that, you know, people who work for pharmaceutical companies, they have loved ones who have cancer too. So you can't believe these, these stories or, you know, what, what people are saying out there. And I think something that's very important too is we expect scientists, clinicians, nurses, we expect industry to respect us and understand us. And we have to do the same as well. We need to ask questions. How does this work? Why does this work this way? What are you know your goals here? And we have to do that with industry and we have to do that with you know, on the research end of things, how does research work where you're doing? What do you need? How, how is this process? How, what does it look like for you? Because it's not, it's really not all about us. It's, it's a collaborative relationship, which is a two-way street. 
Yeah, well said. And, uh, you know, it's, 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 a, it's a topic by itself, trying to avoid the conflict of interest. I do think it's, it's a tough one because we just elaborated on the direct-to-consumer advertising, right? When a patient sees an ad and goes to the doctor, says, I want this, and the doctor has to explain it may not work. So clearly there is this, um, you know, there is a potential for bias yeah. because of that. And it's not always uh, easy Yes, and and that is there definitely is a bias when a person when when a patient isn't uh, doesn't have a ton of knowledge or education about their disease. And I have to say, as a patient, and I can speak for a lot of patients when I say that money would be better spent towards research, yeah, because. It, or towards education. Of course, of course. My last question to you, and you've been very generous with the time. How do you keep up with all of that stuff, Jill? I mean, how? What, what, do, you, what do you, I mean, uh, you probably know more about lung cancer than I do. How, what, what do you actually, seriously, like how do you keep up with that? It, it, it's so funny you say that. I, um, it, it's not easy. I mean, I, I've been I've been doing it for a long time, and when I was when I got involved with longevity, I mean we were a working board, and so I we were spending a lot of times, and I can't tell you how many times I'd have kids in tow doing things, or you know playing in a corner at a board meeting because my husband wasn't around or I couldn't get a sitter, um, and I thought as they got e as they got older it might get easier. And they just need you in different ways. You know, can you prove this paper? Or they need to talk to you about this or that. And they're calling from school. And, and you know, so it, it's just, I think it's different now. I, um, I decided with my husband that advocacy was, helped me. I mean, I guess to put it, you know, bluntly, no amount of, therapy could have ever helped me work through my losses or my own diagnosis like my advocacy work has because it's allowed me to choose the role that lung cancer plays in my life. Without it, it would be all about, you know, the disease and the people I love that died from it. So I don't have, I am not working, I was working part-time for a while. I'm not working in a paying job anymore, except I do, do go to camp every summer for two months. That is my escape. And as the years have gone on, I do a little bit of advocacy while I'm working there, but not as much as I do in the other 10 months. So I do have a reprieve where I re-energize, but otherwise I, you know, I have, I've decided that I, this is what I want to do. I don't want people to ever go through what my family went through. And there is nothing better than knowing that you are helping someone. You are alleviating anxiety. You are pushing the needle. You are really a part of accelerating research that your input matters. And so I guess those are the things that energize me. And I don't know, with COVID, it's been even busier because a lot of us advocates have had more opportunities. 
which yeah. is yeah. wonderful though. But, but I guess you also have to understand that, you know, 10 years ago, 15 years ago, I never would have imagined or dreamed yeah. that we would be where we are today. And I think about my family. I think about the founders of longevity who all died except for one. And I think about, I would not be the advocate I am today with out there, them starting the organization or their guidance and friendship. And I'm grateful for it. And so I, it's up to me to carry on and fight for what's right. And and do it as long as I have the energy and I am able to, and I can provide any value. That's, you know, that's what's important to me. Well, Jill, thank you so much. You've been wonderful. And I'm, I'm, I'm so happy that you are doing well and you are um, really um, helping um, your fellow patients, educating them and, and, and um, to the extent that you can. So I appreciate all what you do and, before I wish you a good evening and let you go back to what you were doing, any final thoughts? I want to leave the last word uh, with the listeners from you. My final thought, I think just anybody who has cancer, is struggling with someone they love who has cancer, is that I think, you know, the first step in becoming an advocate is advocating for yourself, for your family, for your loved one. There, there are communities out there. Nobody, nobody has to go through this alone. And there is nothing like connecting with others in the trenches. And so I, I really would hope that people would search and find their communities. And on the flip side, for any scientists or clinicians, it's, you know, patients as partners in research, we are here to help you help us. And please reach out and, you know, get us involved from the beginning. I promise we, <laughs> we, are, not, we are not whiny uh, patients who complain like, like I think there's a stereotype. So we actually, we actually are uh, very, most of us are pretty easy to work with. So, and thank you so much for having me. This was great. Thank I you very much, Jill. I look forward to our Starbucks, hopefully. Absolutely. Thank you everyone for listening to the Healthcare Unfiltered. I appreciate you taking the time to listen to this podcast. I appreciate your loyalty, your support, and everything that you have shared with me over the past couple of years of my podcasting journey. Please let me know any feedback and any opinions regarding the podcast. You can send an email to shadinabhan00 at outlook.com. You can also connect with me on my website, www.shadinabhan.com. I promise you that I will get these emails and I will answer them timely and I will incorporate your suggestions into any future episodes. Please go to iTunes and any podcast outlet and rate the show 
subscribe to the show, and write us a brief review. A written review will always go way long in making sure others really appreciate the episode that you are referring to. There's always room for improvement. So let me know how we can improve on things. Including, by the way, if you think that the music selection is bad, I can talk to my producer and he'll be in trouble about the music if you think we need to change that. But don't be shy. Please let me know what we can do. And before I let you go, I want to really leave you with a saying, one of my favorite sayings of Winston Churchill. A pessimist sees the difficulty in every opportunity. An optimist sees the opportunity in every difficulty. Until next time, take care.